clock on the back wall says it's time to start. So let's start. Thank you for being here. I'm glad that you chose out of all the many different options that you would choose to spend some time with me today. Somebody asked earlier, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm talking about the Bible, which is kind of a hardy, hard, hard joke when you're a preacher. Aren't you always talking about the Bible? But today I am talking about the Bible in a more specific way. One of the ways I've summarized this teach, a series of teachings, these two classes is, this is how you read the Bible without losing your faith, which maybe is a strange kind of way of framing it. But... The reason, and, and I'll say, I did a whole series on this topic at my home church in Dallas, Preston Road, and there's no way I can cover everything I want to cover in these two sessions. So you can fill in some of the gaps if you go on our website, PrestonRoad.org. I think I did eight weeks on the Bible back last fall. So that, there's an opportunity there for you to go in if you are interested in what you hear today or you think, okay. I think he's crazy, but I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. You can get more details online at PrestonRoad.org. But this is a teaching about the Bible. And this is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. I've been preaching for almost 21 years. I guess a little over 21 years now. And have often thought not just about what does it mean to preach from the Bible, but what would it be like to talk a bit about the Bible, how we read it, and how it works as we read it. How does the Bible do its work on us when we engage it seriously? And there's two sides to this coin as we think about what the Bible does and how it works. On one hand, we know the Bible has been a source of inspiration, faith, encouragement, instruction for millions of people for thousands of years. We are here, gathered in this place. We've been drawn into a relationship with God, in part because of the work that the Bible does. But at the same time, the Bible can also be a source of confusion, of embarrassment, of discouragement for some who really do want to follow Christ, want to take Christ seriously, and yet find themselves stumbling over parts of what the Bible says or the way the Bible says it. And I find myself more and more in conversations with young adults or people who are new to our church. They are intrigued by the gospel, but they struggle with the Bible. So that's part of the genesis of this series of thoughts is, okay, how do we engage it in such a way that it can be a source of faith for us and encouragement, but how do we also acknowledge some of the ways that it functions as a stumbling block, especially for modern readers who come to it from a modern perspective. The Bible's been central to our movement. We've always celebrated the fact that we are people of the book. Pretty much every Sunday when I get up and begin my sermon, I start with the phrase, turning your Bibles to, and then I give a book, chapter, and verse reference because I want what I say to come from the scriptures. And it seems to me as important as the Bible is to us as individuals, also to us as a movement, it's good every now and then to step back and evaluate some of our assumptions. Why do we read the Bible the way we do? What do we think the Bible is? How do we think the Bible is doing its work? But I've got to tell you, in doing this, I'm a little bit nervous. I was nervous when I delivered some of this material to my home church several months ago. I was nervous when I got a chance to travel to Canada and do some of this in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan a couple of months after that. I'm a little bit nervous today because I know how 
sacred our feelings are about the Bible. And in some ways, I think it's easier for us as Christians to step back and evaluate some of our assumptions about Jesus, his teachings, how he taught, what his vision of the kingdom of God was. We're always leaving room to have our understanding deepened when it comes to Christ, and yet we can be very sensitive when someone challenges some of our assumptions about the Bible. So I, I'll acknowledge that I'm a little bit nervous. I know I can't say everything exactly the way I want to say it today. I'm going to open some loops today that I will not be able to close. I'm going to pose some questions that I will not be able to answer, and I'm going to ask for you to give me the benefit of the doubt. You can either come back next week or you could go online, but I can't do everything I want to do today to everyone's satisfaction. And if, like Don McLaughlin was talking about last night, if I say something to ruffles your feathers a little bit, just tell them to settle down and keep listening. Part of what I do want to do today is provoke. And I want to get us to thinking a bit differently about how we approach and engage the Bible. So I am going to push a little bit, but I understand there's a bit of risk in that, especially we don't know each other. At home I could do this, and my church knew me, and they already knew I was a little bit crazy. You, you may think I'm completely crazy by the time this is done. I thought the way I would start is to walk you through some of the Bibles I have owned. These are the major Bibles that I have owned in my lifetime. This was the first Bible I remember ever owning. My mom bought this for me and my sister. My sister was two years younger. She got us this children's Bible to share. I love it. She bought it in the late 70s. It was $6.95. This big, thick, hardback Bible. And it illustrated... And I remember, this is Joseph off weeping when he's confronting his brothers. I remember as a kid reading through or going through that Bible, looking at the pictures, couldn't read the words yet, but I remember those images. And still to this day, there are stories I read in the Bible where I think of the pictures I saw in that Bible. This is what Joseph looks like to me every time I read through the end of Genesis. His hair, how did he get, it's like hairspray back <laughs> Perfect hair. I always thought, wow, he's got good hair. That's how I think of Joseph. Now, I was lucky enough, blessed enough, to grow up in a family that encouraged me to read the Bible. So I always had a Bible handy. Always had a Bible in my room. I remember when I got a little bit older, I had a Bible, and, and I'm reading it at night before I go to bed, and I thought, you know there's nothing to stop me from skipping to the end and seeing how all of this turns out? <laughs> and I skipped to the end, and it was Revelation, and I thought, I don't know that I want to know how all of this turns out. Little kid, I couldn't figure out what it was all about. I, but I grew up in a household that made sure I always had access to the scriptures. And then there's this Bible. I was given this Bible. I think it was my first grade Sunday school teacher. You can see why I received, second grade teacher, rather. You can see why I received it. I was eight years old, and she came in one day and says, here's a list of memory verses, and anyone who can memorize these memory verses and then come in and recite them all will give you a Bible. Well, I'm super competitive, got a pretty good memory, but I can do this, so I was the only one in my second grade Sunday school class who took that assignment seriously, took the challenge, memorized the verses, came in, and I said them, she said verses at one time. I didn't say them all at one time. I did them one after the other. That would have been weird if I'd said them all at one time. But that's the Bible that she gave me. And I still have it on my bookshelf. And I remember eight years old, she said to me, you have a wonderful memory. Maybe someday you will grow up to be a preacher. 
And now, over 35 years later, there are at least three churches that deeply regret she never said those words. <laughs> this was the Bible my church gave me my senior year. That was the church's gift to every graduating senior. Gave us this big study Bible. And I don't know, you, you know what these look like. It's like three inches thick. And they give it to you. It's the sword of the spirit, but it's the heaviest sword of the spirit I've ever carried. That was my first experience. You know, you can train yourself physically and spiritually at the same time just carrying that Bible around. I was blessed to grow up in churches that encouraged us to take the Bible seriously. I remember one when I was in high school, we, our church made a big deal out of daily Bible reading. Been a part of a church that where you count the daily Bible readers, every class would, who all was a daily Bible reader? You had to raise your hands. Okay, we had six daily Bible readers, and then you'd tabulate, and one of the things that would show up in the bulletin that they would mail out every week, we had our attendance, we had our giving, and we had our daily Bible readers. So that was an important metric for our church. But I was in high school, and I really wanted to be a daily Bible reader, but it was really hard to, to be in high school and read the Bible every day. And so I had a deacon in our church tell me, here's how you do it. I've got it all figured out. So first off, you come to church on Sunday, and we're going to read the Bible at church. That counts. That's one day. And then he said on Monday night at 11.59 p.m., you get out your Bible and you start reading. And you read to at least 12.01 a.m. That's Monday and Tuesday right there. <laughs> He said, you only have to do that three times a week. You're going to read the Bible at church, and you only have to read the Bible three times a week to technically be a daily Bible reader. And so that's how I learned how to be a daily Bible reader. It also was my beginning, my training as a Pharisee. <laughs> now, if, if that's the sword of the Spirit, this was my dagger. I call this my Baptist Bible. Not because I was a Baptist, but this was the Bible where I had outlined all the verses I needed to counteract Baptist doctrine. And I, I had every verse, when I was arguing with my Baptist friends, every verse highlighted in red. That's Acts 2.38. Of course, it would be highlighted. And I could turn, and I just knew, oh, we're going to talk about Acts 2.38. And I had every verse, and I could just hand it. So just read the parts in red, and you'll see where you're wrong. <laughs> And I had all kinds of verses outlined in that Bible. So I, I considered that Bible to be my weapon. And then over the last 15 years, this has been my primary Bible. I really do most of my Bible study on my laptop or maybe on my smartphone now. Most of the time when I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading it digitally. It's just it's the kind of Bible I read. Now, this is my preaching Bible. I use it when I preach on Sunday mornings. It, the only time I ever read this Bible is on Sunday morning when I'm standing on stage getting ready to preach. And the reason I love this Bible is it has large print, which is becoming increasingly important <laughs> as I get older. I share those different Bibles with you, I guess as a way of saying I love the Bible. I was raised reading the scriptures, treasuring the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures. I have been preaching for 21 years, reading the scriptures carefully and trying to let the scriptures shape how I talk about the gospel and its call on our lives. I, I wouldn't be here without the Bible. I treasure it. But at the same time, 
I've been reading it long enough that I've got some questions about it. And I hope I've been reading it carefully enough that I've changed the way I think of the Bible over the years. Different stages of my life, the Bible has been a magic book. It's been a rule book. It's been a guidebook. It's been a self-help book. Maybe even a cookbook, putting together recipes a little bit from here, a little bit from there, and mix it all together. And I guess one of the number one lessons I've learned about the Bible, one of the newer things, and I've always known it, but I've just only recently, I think, begun to really appreciate it. One of the things I've, I've come to understand about the Bible is it's really not a book. It's easy to think of it as a book, it, especially it's bound like a book, looks like a book, feels like a book, has pages like a book, even has page numbers like a book. And it's amazing how the way we bind the Bible together gives us this impression it's one single book. And the truth is it's a library of books. It's a collection of books that were written over a fairly long period of time. I've got this slide I like to do, the Bible by the numbers. The Bible is it's not this book, it's this ancient library of 66 books written over approximately 1,500 years. You can quibble with that on one side or the other, I'm not here to argue that kind of stuff. Written by at least 40 different authors or editors, three different languages, using three major literary styles. Now, you could probably break that out into more if you want, but narrative, poetry, discourse, as in speeches and letters, big three, but there's sub genres as well. And when you think of the Bible like this, 66 books written by a bunch of different people over a different long period of time, it does give a certain human element to the Bible. Because the people who wrote these different books in the Bible were writing at different times in history, different situations, different cultures, facing different problems, they're writing, as I said, different languages, maybe different perspectives, facing different issues over a very long period of time. And when I think about the Bible as this library of books, it, it makes it more human to me that this is a library of books written by people, God's people, but people who are reflecting on their experience with God over a long period of time. And yet at the same time, what is so amazing about the Bible is, given all of this, it still tells a somewhat unified story that starts with creation, gets wrapped up in redemption, and then ends in new creation. It tells this unified story over this long period of time about the way God engages a particular group of people, the family of Abraham, for the sake of the world. And there's some unity to this story, which explains why when we read the Bible, we, we can read it as books written by human beings, but at the same time, we also, as people of faith, we have to say this is not just a book written by humans about God. This is the word of God. Somehow, God is at work through these 66 different books. Somehow, God is speaking to us and guiding us and telling us a story through these books. Somehow, this book 
is inspired. It's inspired by God. And we get the language of inspiration, different versions, but there's a text where, Second eh, Timothy, probably one of the most popular, most familiar passages where someone actually talks about what the Bible is in the Bible. But Paul's writing in 2 Timothy 3, and he says, As for you, continue in what you have learned, speaking to Timothy, and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed. Some translations would say inspired. And is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Paul's talking about the scriptures. He says these scriptures are inspired by God. They're breathed by God. God breathed. Now, remember, when Paul's talking about the scriptures in this context, I'm not talking about the New Testament. He's really only talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet when Paul is writing, or hadn't been called the New Testament yet when Paul is writing to Timothy. So he's talking about the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And he says somehow these scriptures are God-breathed or inspired. But the word he uses... The original language is only only time it's used in the New Testament is here in this passage, and it's not used that often in other ancient literature. So it's really hard to get a beat on what exactly does he mean by God breathed because you can't compare it to the way other authors and writers use it. So he he says it's God breathed, it's inspired, and yet it's a bit of a mystery as to what he means by it. But if we pay attention to the Bible, and I get this language from Pete Enns, if we pay attention to the way the Bible behaves, if the way the Bible works, as we're reading it, we're noticing what it does and doesn't do, we can in some ways deduce what God breathed doesn't mean. And as I read the scriptures, one of the things I conclude is it doesn't mean that it was dictated by God. As if God somehow took over the mind or the hand of the human writer and poured those words straight through the person doing the writing. I want you to take a look at this painting. This is a work done by Caravaggio, a little bit hard to see. But this is a painting of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew writing the Gospel. And this painting's actually been destroyed. It's a bit of a recreation from some drawings. But you notice he has the angel reaching over and guiding Matthew's hand. Well, he painted this painting first church officials didn't like it for a number of different reasons, and so he came back and he painted another one. And this one's a bit different. Notice this time, still the Gospel of Matthew, but this time the angel's not intervening quite so much. It's hovering over, and, but he, there's still this sense he's listening. What, what would you like me to say? And growing up, I thought whatever it means to say the Bible's inspired, it's got to be something kind of like that the angel guiding the hand or at least dictating the words to the authors. And yet, as I read scripture, it does not seem to me all of it was dictated. Maybe some of the prophets and the prophetic oracles and thus says the Lord, maybe that is straight from the Lord and a prophet is channeling the word of God to the people. But not all of the Bible reads that way. 
Is there are parts of the Bible where the writers of Scripture actually say, I'm basing this on some other sources. Parts of the Bible where at least one writer says, look, this isn't a word from the Lord, this is my own opinion. I'm thinking first of Luke, who says, as I'm going to write my gospel, I've consulted other sources, I've done some research, and now I'm going to carefully tell you this story about Jesus. And it appears at least one of his sources was the Gospel of Mark. If you buy into that Mark was the first gospel to be written, it looks like both Matthew and Luke used Mark in some ways as source material as they're writing their gospel. They start with Mark and then they add some other details and they shape the story in different ways. It doesn't seem to be dictated, it seems to be researched and well thought out as to how they constructed their story. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about some options, giving them some advice about marriage, and he's careful to say, now what I'm about to say, this isn't a word from the Lord. This is my opinion. So maybe at least that line wasn't dictated by the Lord. Paul's able to show the humanness of his writings and say, no, I'm just trying to give you some advice. So when we think about what God breathed means, I don't think it means it was dictated. I'm guessing probably most of you don't either. But this next one may be a bit more challenging. As I read the scriptures, and this is reflective of my own journey, I can deduce that God breathed also does not mean that the scriptures are without error. Technical word for that is inerrant. And that's a pretty big word, and it's a really important word to people who take the Bible seriously. So I want to be very careful in how I talk about this for the next few minutes. This assumption behind inerrancy is that in order for the Bible to be the Word of God, inspired by God, sourced by God, the Bible has to be without error. Scientific error, factual error, historic error, chronological error, that... Because it is from God, it must be perfect. And again, it all depends on how you want to define perfect. But one way of doing it is to say the Bible, to say that it is inspired by God, means that it is inerrant. The problem with this is when you read the Bible carefully, you do find some details that don't always square up with the assumption that there aren't going to be some kind of errors in the Bible. Let me give you several examples. This is a drawing of ancient cosmology, scientific view of the world. Ancient cosmology, it was believed that there was a a dome up in the sky, the firmament of heaven and the stars, and then above the dome there was water. Below the earth there was shield, and there were pillars holding up the sky. This was the ancient scientific view of the world. So we're to ask scientists, ancient scientists, how is the world put together? It was some version of this. And this shows up in the Bible, in the early chapters of Genesis, other places as well, Job, some of the Psalms. That is an ancient cosmology. And I don't think anybody here would say, I, at least I'm, I'll speak for myself, I don't see that as a scientifically accurate description of the way the world is put together. And yet it's in a collection of books inspired by God. But we have more understanding, scientific understanding and knowledge of the way the world is put together now, and this seems rather outdated. Another example, 
Mark chapter 11, the way the story unfolds, Jesus is on his way into Jerusalem. He'll be crucified in a few days. But on his way into Jerusalem, he curses a fig tree. And then he goes and he cleanses the temple. That act of cleansing the temple serves as a catalyst for the religious leaders to say, we really got to get rid of this guy. That's Mark chapter 11. To read in Matthew chapter 21, and Matthew flips the order. Matthew 21, Jesus goes in Jerusalem, curses the temple, or turns the, up, turns the tables over in the temple, does his thing there. Then on the way out of town, he curses the fig tree. Now, either way you read it, both of those events are meant to be read together as a commentary on one another. Jesus sees a fig tree that's not bearing fruit, and he curses it. He goes to a temple that's not bearing fruit, and he curses it. Or he goes to the temple and curses it, and then he curses the fig tree as an illustration of what he's already done. Either way, no matter how you read the order, there's some theological significance there. But it appears that, at least to Mark and to Matthew, the chronological order of those events are not that important to them. Can it be both? I had one person suggest maybe Jesus cursed two fig trees. I just don't think Jesus in the last week of his life is just walking around Jerusalem <laughs> cursing fig trees. <laughs> and then there's John's gospel who puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, closer to the beginning of the story. Whereas in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the cleansing of the temple near the end that brings about Jesus' crucifixion, or at least contributes to it. Could it be that the chronological reporting of these major events in Jesus' life weren't as important to the writers of the Gospels as they are to us? And these different accounts are in books of the Bible inspired by God, or this one. I probably could get in over my head on this one. Dr. Childers is in here. At any point, just jump up and say, Wade, you're an idiot, and storm out of the room. But I could get over my head with this one, but this is Matthew chapter 27, where he cites a word from the prophet Jeremiah. He says the prophet spoke. Jeremiah said, and it was fulfilled, they took 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Here's the problem with that. That's not in Jeremiah. That's in Zechariah. Is it possible, now there are a number of ways to explain this, but is it possible that good old Matthew, human being that he was, got his prophets confused? Because Jeremiah also talks about a potter. And just like you do, just like I do, just like I'll do before I finish this teaching today, one word is in your head and you say another. Or you write another. A human error. In the Bible. A collection of books inspired or breathed by God. Now there are some ways around it. There are some ancient explanations for maybe why this isn't that big a deal. But let's just go, go with it for, as a thought experiment. Let's, let's assume Matthew got it wrong. He just named the wrong prophet. Is that a problem? If he did, what does it say about the nature of Scripture? Is it a problem that he got it wrong? Well, it depends upon how you think about what it means to say the Bible is inspired or is breathed by God. In his book, The Bible Made Impossible, Christian Smith talks about 
he uses the phrase biblicist. And what he means by biblicist is a biblicist is someone who has to have an inerrant Bible in order to have faith. A biblicist bases their faith on the foundation of an error-free Bible. Because if the Bible has errors in it, then it couldn't have been written by God. And if it's not written by God, why should I put my trust in anything it says? Is the logic. And if you're a biblicist, then these kind of things that I'm describing could be problems, major problems. In fact, you've probably seen and have read articles and attempts, biblicists will will do whatever they can, perform all kinds of mental gymnastics, trying to explain why none of those examples, and there are many more that I didn't point out, none of those examples are really errors. And they all somehow can be reconciled. So there are no contradictions, there are no discrepancies in the way these stories are told in the Word of God. Because the assumption is, if there are some inaccuracies in this book, historical, chronological, scientific, whatever, then I can't trust it as the word of God. God couldn't have inspired it. So the, the biblicist approaches it that way. Meanwhile, there are atheists who would carefully read the Bible looking for ammo, and they see these same errors and jump up and down and say, See, I told you. I told you there was no way this could be the word of God. God did not inspire this book. It has errors in it. It is not worthy of your time or your trust or your faith. But notice both the biblicist and the atheist have the same assumptions about what it means to say the Bible is inspired. They're both working with the same expectations. They both expect a God-breathed collection of books to be perfect in the way we moderns define perfection. We have certain standards for what we can call historically accurate, scientifically accurate. I want to say we have certain journalistic standards, but I cannot say that anymore. <laughs> we want there to be. We want to believe that whoever's telling us a story has got the events lined up in just the right accurate order. And we have these modern expectations that we pour into the word inerrant, which, by the way, is never used in the Bible to describe itself. That is a word we lay over the Bible to say, if it's going to be from God, it has to be an error. The Bible itself never says that. That's an expectation we bring to the Bible. Now, why does this matter? Well, consider this scenario. Newlywed couple comes home from their honeymoon. First night, back in their home, man and wife, and they get ready for bed. And the husband sets his alarm clock, 6 a.m., turns out the light, and says to his new bride in the dark, I'm going to get up at 6. Could you have breakfast ready at 6.30? In the dark, he hears his new bride say, excuse me? And in the dark, he says, well, mom always cooked breakfast for dad before he went to work. Bacon, eggs, biscuits. Here's the cover shuffle, and there's a click, and the light comes on, and his new bride is sitting up in bed. And he realizes, no, we're not quite ready for bed yet after all. 
Ever heard the phrase, expectations are nothing more than premeditated resentments or disappointments? Part of the problem, one of the reasons the Bible has become a stumbling block for people who want to take Christ seriously but keep struggling with what the Bible says and how it says it is some of the expectations we bring to the Bible for what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to work when we read it. And I'm becoming more and more concerned and I guess passionate about this because I've got two teenage boys. And I think about as not just their preacher but now as their father, I don't want to set them up for an unnecessary faith crisis because I am teaching them to expect certain things from the Bible that the Bible never tells us to expect from it. Life is hard enough and they're going to have enough crises of faith on their own getting into their own kinds of trouble without me pushing some theory of how to read the Bible on them that may cause them in their mid-twenties to say, or when they go to college and are challenged by an honorary professor to say, I thought the Bible was supposed to function this way and now it's not functioning this way. I can't believe in it. Well, maybe it's the problem is not with the Bible. It, the problem is with the expectations we bring to the Bible. And there's a different way of reading it. So let's go back to what Paul says in 2 Timothy. Let's try to figure out what he means by God breathed from the context. Not some modern definition, but just watch the way this idea of a God-breathed scripture functions. He says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. First thing he says about the scriptures is they're able. They're capable. Capable of what? capable of making you wise for salvation in Christ. They're able. And then he says all scriptures God breathed, inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now he says they're useful. Useful for teaching, training, for righteousness, for equipping. They're God-breathed. What are God-breathed scriptures good for? They're good for leading you to Jesus, making you wise for salvation, and training you for righteousness. If I'm summarizing what he seems to be getting at here, you can say it this way. We can trust the Bible to lead us to Jesus and train us how to be more like him. What do we come to the Bible expecting? Not necessarily... A modern, historically, scientifically, journalistically accurate account of every story we read, things that happened 3,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago, we come to the Bible believing these words breathed by God can lead us to Jesus and teach and train us how to be more like him. Paul doesn't worry about defining the term God breathed. 
He's more interested in showing us what a God-breathed Bible does. And it leads us to Jesus and trains us to be more like him. I can't give you a technical definition of God-breathed. Paul doesn't give you one, but I can share with you this image from Scripture that's super helpful to me. In Genesis 2.7, it says, The Lord formed Adam from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And Adam became a living being. It's the breath of God that gave Adam the human life. It's the breath of God that brought something that wasn't alive to life. And then there's a similar kind of image in Ezekiel 37. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones, I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. It's the breath of God that gives life to dead bones. What does it mean to say that these scriptures are God-breathed? What does it mean to open our Bibles and read ancient words written thousands of years ago in languages that most of us don't understand and yet have been translated into our own. What does it mean when we open the scriptures? What is God doing when we read these words and Jesus becomes real to us? And we receive information and inspiration for how to become more. What is God doing? I think when we gather as a church and we open our Bibles... God is breathing on these words. And it's the breath of God that makes them come to life. Were they alive when they were written? Absolutely. But they're also alive now. And it's still the same spirit, the same breath of God bringing life to the Bible for the purpose of leading us to Jesus and training us to be more like him. It's about our expectations. What do you think is supposed to happen when you take this book or these ser- this library book seriously? Christ becomes real. There's this great story about Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, at the end of Luke's gospel, you know, on the road to Emmaus. And he's walking and he's disguised, or at least they don't recognize him, and they're talking about what's happened in Jerusalem, what happened to Jesus, and they're brokenhearted. And he begins to talk about how in the scriptures all of this was foretold. The the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures were telling the story of a crucified and risen Christ. Luke 24, 27, it says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Christ explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, Christ uses the scriptures to do exactly what later Paul will say the scriptures were designed to do. Make us wise for salvation. But even then, that's not enough. They still don't recognize it. And so later on, they come to the place where they're going and they invite this stranger who's the risen Christ in for a meal. And verse 30, it says, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They recognized him. 
and he disappeared from their sight, and they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? I love the connection that somehow it's not just the reading of the scripture, but it's when we read the scripture and we come together to break bread as a church. It's in the breaking of the bread that Jesus is revealed to us, and yet when Jesus is revealed to us, we remember what the scriptures said. And how this works is a mystery. And some mysteries aren't meant to be solved. They're meant to be received. The mystery of how Christ could be fully human and fully divine is not something we can understand. It's something we receive and we trust Him for salvation. And the mystery of how the Bible could be written by humans and inspired by God is a mystery. Not a mystery we have to solve, but one we have to receive how Jesus is revealed through the breaking of bread is a mystery. But we receive it. Because every time we go to the table, Jesus is there breaking the bread. And every time we open our Bibles and gather around the Word as a church, God is there breathing life. That's my journey so far with the scriptures. And that's how I'm learning to read them. Not as a puzzle to be solved, but as a mystery to be received with thanksgiving. I'm done. <laughs> Until tomorrow. I want to say a prayer, though, and then any questions, comments, thoughts you have, I'd love to visit with you immediately after this. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your son, Jesus, the living word of God. And thank you for giving us the scriptures, the written word of God. Lord, I ask that you would continue to use the scriptures to lead us to Jesus and to make us more like him. And that you would give us the courage and the insight and the wisdom to know how to take the scriptures seriously without overlaying unnecessary stumbling blocks that would keep us from being able to engage those ancient words. And Lord, when when we read the scriptures and the words seem dry and dead and lifeless. Would you breathe the breath of life into them and through them into us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here. Have a great lunch. Great afternoon.